0: Yeah, God's Word has continued to speak to us as we've continued through the Gospel of John. Today we're in John chapter 11. I'd ask you to open there. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1064, John chapter 11. We're starting in verse 45. And it's the account of the plot to kill Jesus, the ruling council of Israel, the Sanhedrin, is... uh, Planning what to do about the Jesus problem, and they've come up with a permanent solution. And uh, it's it's sobering, it's frightening, but I think John wants us to read this and be encouraged. Well, let's read it and see how we might be encouraged. John chapter eleven, starting in verse forty-five. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. That is, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for his great power. We thank you that you have your hand on all affairs in the universe, all the things in the world. We thank you that even in these events we read about, we know that your hand was on all these events. In fact, we can see the evidence of it. And Father, remind us that your hand is on the events in our own lives. We pray that you would encourage us through your word today, that you would give us confidence and boldness in Jesus' name, amen. So sometimes you just know it's time to quit. You've, you've rallied all the support, you've faced all the opposition, you've worked through all the obstacles You've overcome the discouragements, and then everything falls apart. You, you open the envelope, and there's the terrible news you weren't expecting that undoes all your plans. You sit down and open the email you weren't hoping to get, and you turn away completely deflated. You walk away from the doctor's office, from the hospital room, and your plans are completely undone. You sit in a meeting, someone turns to you, looks you in the eye, and they say those words <clears throat> that reverse everything. And I think that maybe this is how the disciples felt when they retreated to that little village at the edge of the desert. It's called Ephraim. And uh, we, we, we read about them there in verse 54 that Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews, instead he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And I imagine the disciples were feeling that it was a good thing to withdraw, to retreat, to hole up in Ephraim. You know, at the beginning of chapter 11, when they first you know, started out for this journey down to Jerusalem, they didn't want to go. They're trying to convince Jesus, no, you don't want to go back there. They were just trying to kill you. And he said, no, we're going. And Thomas, the you know, doubting Thomas, says, well, let's go with him that we may die with him. They weren't looking forward to coming down to Jerusalem. And uh, when they got there, it was so exciting. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And it looked like now everything was going to turn around. Now the opposition was going to be won over. Uh, you know, the, uh, John was connected. It says in chapter 18 that he was known to the high priest's family. Jesus had connections too. He's, he, he has a follower named Nicodemus who's a member of the council that has just made this decision to put him to death. There's a secret disciple named Joseph of Arimathea who's a member of the council that has just decided to put Jesus to death. Somehow or other word gets to Jesus. And so he withdraws and takes the disciples up to Ephraim, the little village near the desert. And I think the disciples are feeling it's a good time to throw in the towel, to withdraw, to give up. And I think John looks back on those days. He looks back on those months they spent in Ephraim, and he sees them now from a different perspective. Now, forty years later, uh, near near the end of his life, and he realizes that they had every reason to not be discouraged, but to be encouraged. Because though they had withdrawn to the village of Ephraim, Jesus is there, and Jesus has the power to change everything, to win over everything, to face everything, and to overcome. The power of Jesus changes everything. And so the power of Jesus leads to the confidence of his followers. Followers of Jesus don't need to be discouraged. They don't need to be disheartened. They may retreat, but they don't retreat in defeat. They retreat in order to return in confidence. So let's just look through this passage and see the ways that we can find encouragement and confidence through recognizing the power of Jesus. First of all, we see it right here in the first verse of our passage, verse 45, chapter 11, verse 45. It says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary And had seen what Jesus did when he called Lazarus out of his grave and called him to life. They put their faith in him. The power of Jesus means many trust him. Many come to faith in him. Jesus has a power that wins people's reliance, their belief, their faith, and their trust. And this is the great asset that Jesus and his uh, band of disciples have, even as uh, they hole up in Ephraim. So, the source of all this, the problems, all the things that are going on, the beginning of all these events is that Jesus is winning disciples. The, the whole problem in this, in this account, the whole reason why the disciples have to retreat is because they're too successful. Jesus is too powerful, he's too influential, he accomplishes far too much, and it's unsettling. So uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and people see the fingerprint of God. Uh, Also, later in the passage, we see the influence, the growing influence of Jesus. Down there in in, uh, verses 55 and 56, it says... um, It's almost time for the Jewish Passover. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem. People from all over the countryside are now gathering in Jerusalem for the highest festival of the year, the Passover. And they've come early for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And verse 56, they kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? And it sounds like they're, they're interested, they're eager in seeing Jesus. At least there's a positive buzz that's out there. There's excitement about Jesus. Jesus has done, uh, in, in the Gospel of John, as we've, as we've read it, John has recorded for us seven great miraculous signs. Of course, later in the book of John, at the conclusion, he tells us well, there are a whole lot of other things Jesus did, and they're not all written here. But seven great signs Jesus has done. He started out showing how he can provide by turning water to wine at a wedding. And then he showed how there are no limitations that that he is uh, held back by. When he heals an official's son at, uh, at distance, remote healing. And then he shows that he recreates human life when he makes the lame man walk. And then he starts the whole cycle over again. He shows that he can provide by feeding 5,000 with a few loaves of bread. He shows that there are no physical limitations for him when he walks on the water. And he shows that, that he is the one who recreates human nature when he makes the man born blind to see. And then he tops it all off with the seventh miracle. He stands at the tomb of Lazarus and says come out, and the dead man gets up and comes out. Jesus has done these amazing signs, and people are amazed. But the power of Jesus to draw people to him is not limited to miraculous signs. In fact, there's a whole strain that's going on every time we see Jesus doing another miraculous sign in the Gospel of John, we keep coming up with things like, they see it but they don't believe. It stares them right in the face, and they don't get it. Miraculous signs aren't enough. And then with the healing of that that official's son, the remote healing, Jesus in exasperation says, unless you people see miraculous signs, you will not believe. People are commended for believing without seeing in the Gospel of John. And miraculous signs are not necessary. In, uh, in the Samaritan town, a huge number of people came to faith in Jesus. Jesus didn't do any miraculous signs. And so, uh, Jesus' power is at work, even where there are no miraculous signs, which is a great encouragement for us, because Jesus isn't around doing those kinds of miraculous signs today. And yet his power is present today to win people to faith in him. Jesus' power is still leading people to believe today. In, uh, in his book, uh, Speaking of Jesus, Max Stiles tells of, of the, the, the school atheist in his high school. Uh, John went off to college And uh, when John the Atheist got to college, uh, one of his first classes, he was assigned to, to read some sections of the Bible. He had never done that before. It's dangerous stuff for an atheist. It began to raise doubts about his atheism when he encountered God's Word and the evidences within Scripture. And over the weeks that followed, over the months that followed, he began to feel like God was hounding him. He couldn't escape from the thoughts and the ideas that he was encountering, the doubts about his his comfortable worldview, his confident worldview of atheism. So one weekend he was out hitchhiking and uh, out on Highway 52 trying to get over to Kentucky from Rhodes College, and uh, along comes a car, picks him up, and um, it's a long-haired, wild-eyed Jesus freak. This is the 1960s. And so this guy, he welcomes him into his car, gives him a ride, and this guy's all excited about Jesus. And he says, man, Jesus saved me from heroin addiction. And he shows him the tracks on his arm. And, you know, his life is just transformed. He's just bubbling over with, with excitement for Jesus. So it's a long, uncomfortable ride for John in the car until he finally gets to his destination, he gets out. And so these things are bothering him. These things are hounding him. And, uh, but he, he manages to sort of uh, you know, sweep it under the rug. A few weeks later, he's, he's out again hitchhiking on Highway 52. Uh, finally, a car stops, picks him up, two guys in it. He, uh, you know, the door's open, he throws his backpack in, he jumps in, and there's the Jesus freak. <laughs> Together with some you know, African-American guy, the passenger. And, uh, and so the, the Jesus freak kind of leans over the back of the car and says, The obvious. God's after you, man. <laughs> so so the, uh, the African-American guy says, you know, I, I was in jail. This guy came. He, he bailed me out. Now he's driving me home. Man, I don't know what he's got. White folk, don't do this for black folk. But whatever he's got, I want it. All of a sudden, John just, uh, he, he, the car seems too small. He's got to get out. So he says, let me out, let me out. Man, you're in the middle of cornfields. You're not going anywhere. Oh, that was true. He gets out of the car. The car takes off. And he just lights off through the corn stalks, just running. He gets out in the middle of the field. He just falls down on his knees. He looks up. He searches the sky. He shouts out, who are you? And then he whispers, what do you want with me? His atheism was, was gone, God would answer his prayer very soon. Jesus is present. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is saving lives. It's happening right around us. And uh, every time we have one of our baptism and testimony services, you've got to come. You've got to hear the ways that God is working in, in people's lives. Jesus' power means that many come to believe in him. But Jesus' power also means that some fear him. Some, uh, some are afraid of him the way that these leaders of the Jews are afraid of him. So if we just look down verse 46 through 50, we see the council. We see, uh, you know, we step away from the public, uh, the public arena into the Uh, the secret council of the Jews. Uh, So verse 46. Some, Some of the people who had seen what Jesus did at Lazarus' tomb, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They're afraid. Here this man is performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're afraid. Jesus' power destabilizes. You know, they're they're too afraid to observe the meaning of the signs. When someone raises the dead, it's a sign. And even they themselves, they say he is doing many miraculous signs. But signs signify. That's what signs are. And so these religious people ought to think about the meaning of the sign that surely this man is sent from God. But what they think about is overwhelmed, it's colored, it's shaded, it's focused only by their fear. Their fear that Jesus is just drawing too much of a crowd. That this crowd is going to get too excited and that Roman power is going to come and crush the nation. So 40 years later, you know, the Romans did come. 40 years later, the Romans did come and take away their place, their temple, take away their nation, their nationhood. And uh, all of it came true. So all of their conniving and their plotting achieved nothing. They didn't save the nation politically. But it's, it's, uh, it's very amazing how The words of the high priest really come true. Well, uh, fear is is something that just overcomes us. It it colors everything, and it shapes how we react to the world. I'm reminded of what my brother used to tell me whenever I'd be afraid of some animal, some terrible insect or a mouse or something like this. He'd say, it's more afraid of you than you are of it. That's exactly what what we need to remember as believers. The world sometimes is more afraid of us than we are of them. And if we fall into that whole pattern of fear, then we too become dumb. And we start to make bad decisions. And we start to look foolish. A couple of years ago, Jeremy and I attended a seminar at Park Street Church. And it was, um, it was a seminar about ministry to the gay community. The speakers were interrupted when a street dem- demonstration developed. And it was kind of frightening. You know, somebody started coming up by the window and they were yelling at us and everything. Um, on reflection, we realized that their anger came from fear. And... Um, So the speakers explained the fears that they themselves had when they, you know, the the fears which had kept them away from Christ, which had kept them away from churches, which had kept them away from Christians, which had kept them away from the Bible. So they described the the fears that they had lived in. And uh, one of them, one lady, told of her journey to rediscover her femininity. And so by her femininity, she meant... Uh, a warm, welcoming, friendly, open disposition. Um, an accepting, disarming kindliness. That that, that's what, what she viewed as really being the essence of femininity. And uh, that she had erected steel walls around her, her personality. You know, booby traps and impenetrable barriers to keep anyone from getting close. And uh, that it was a a long process for her to learn to let down her guard. And it it took some secure, safe friendships. And she said that the reason that, that women get into this mode of rejecting their femininity is because little girls are hurt. And they're afraid. Fear makes us crazy. And we as believers need to somehow overcome fear and uh, not let fear get the best of us. Uh, Fear is hard to deal with. But when you realize that your opponents are angry at you, your opponents are threatening you because they're afraid, they're angry at you and they're threatening you because Jesus is so powerful, then you realize that You really shouldn't be afraid. And uh, you really ought to be confident because Jesus is powerful. And that is what we believe. And we believe that he will overcome. So be compassionate toward the angry. You have the power of Jesus, all they have is fear. Fear leads to bad strategy, bad planning. Don't act out of fear. Caution, yes. So how do you draw that line between fear and caution? Well, I I wish I could give you a one-liner about how to do that, but that's what wisdom is. Just keep God at the center. Keep focusing on God. Keep remembering who God is. Keep living by faith, and then that's what, what can help you keep a right perspective. Just... See the world as it is with God at the center and our lives in his hands. And that can help you keep that balance between caution and fear. So the power of Jesus means that many trust him. It means that some fear him. And the power of Jesus means that all will serve him. So all authority has been given to Jesus. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And he is God's son. He reigns as king. So he isn't like a king. No, 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 no. It's the other way around. Kings, with their authority and their regal power, are like him. He is the king. He reigns. He rules. Everything is in his hands. All serve him. And so that's what the the other thing that comes out in this passage. The, the, The stunning little event at the center of the passage is that the words of the chief priest, which crystallized the plot to kill Jesus, are words that God takes up as a prophecy. And so what happens is that Caiaphas, preaches the gospel in the Sanhedrin. Everyone, sooner or later, has to serve God. God takes control of everything. He uses everything to his own ends, and he doesn't let anything go to waste. Look at, uh, look at these verses here. Um, they're, they're complaining, you know, they've gathered the assembly together, verses 47 and 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You can imagine they're yammering and they're complaining and they're whining and then Caiaphas stands up like a mob boss. You know, he says, you guys know nothing at all. You know nothing at all. That's what he says in verse 49. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And the words are so true. You know, at that time, he, he was proclaiming the gospel. That's the gospel. One man, one holy man, dies for the whole nation, dies for all the people, and saves by his death. The death and the cursing that falls on that one man bring life and blessing to the many. How, how unexpected, how amazing, how like God to do that. God is just like a chess master. He turns his enemies' attacks into his own opportunity. You can't win against him. You can only draw out the game and make his victory more marvelous. So in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Egypt, in Libya, Christians are in danger they're afraid for their lives it seems like the cause of christ is being pushed back in those nations and in many other places around the world and it's a terrible thing and we pray for them and we want to see what we can do to help our brothers and sisters in these in these terrible perils but god's cause is not set back in our nation we're concerned about um, religious liberty, about hiring requirements, about free speech limits, about reproductive health mandates, about uh, classifying religious groups as discriminatory as is taking place on college campuses. We're afraid for our religious liberty that we may lose it. Well, whichever way these things go, and we need to be cautious, we need to be active as, as citizens of a, of a great country, but we have a confidence that God's purpose, God's glory, Christ's name will still prevail, that God will use this to his own ends, that God will bring all things to serve him in the end. So Caiaphas gives his speech to the Sanhedrin. It wasn't a godly speech. You can hear it. In, in his tone, in his words, you guys know nothing at all. It wasn't uh, godly advice, it was very ungodly advice. Listen to Acts chapter 4, uh, 27 to 28, talks about this decision. It says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. Whom you appoint, anointed, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It was ungodly advice, but God was in control. it wasn 't true wisdom, Paul talks about true wisdom in first Corinthians chapter two and this advice of of uh, Caiaphas. It may have been a prophecy from God, but it wasn't true wisdom. Listen to what Paul says about wisdom here, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. We, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was not godly, a godly speech. It was not wise speech. It was not true wisdom. And it wasn't even done with the right motive. It wasn't spoken with the right motive. Listen to um, what Paul says about people... Preaching the gospel with wrong motives. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, 15 to 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. It was a godless, unwise, evil speech, but God used it. And looking back at it 40 years later, John just has to marvel and say, that year The high priest, in the year that Jesus was crucified, the high priest prophesied that one man would die so that the nation could live. And not only was his purpose to save just the nation of Israel, but that all the children of God, wherever they would be, scattered throughout the world, all who would believe in his name, would be gathered together and made one. This was the the purpose of God. You know, God God overrules. He works things out in ways that surprise and amaze us. God is not limited. And, uh, you you know, he he doesn't get frightened and discouraged the way we do. And so we need to have confidence in him. Um, You know... We, we learned a huge lesson about this as a church. I don't know, if some, some of you have been around here for, for you know, way more years than I have. Some of you as long as I've been here. Some of you are new and you don't know the story of what we went through to put up this building. But uh, there, was, there were lessons that we learned about God's faithfulness and about trusting God and not giving up. About being encouraged rather than being discouraged. So after five years of effort, In the year 2003, we faced a huge discouragement. We had put forward a plan to build a family life center. It was going to be an outreach center featuring a gymnasium, a multi-purpose hall, a place where we could do outreach and where the name of Jesus could go out and where people could come to trust him, where the power of Jesus could be at work through the gospel, through spreading the gospel and inviting people in to hear the good news. Well, after five years of effort, the uh, Board of Health informed us that our, uh, our application was going to be rejected. We could try to push ahead or we could withdraw it, which might be better for us. We withdrew it. And we were quite discouraged. Well, what to do now? So we started looking, you know, what are other options? Where could we go? What could we do? Could we build somewhere else? You know, what? we're limited on this property. And so uh, we, we, we commissioned a, a group of people. They began a study, and they looked into different options. They came back, they reported, and they said, the best option is to try again here. And, uh, you know, in the meanwhile, what we had noticed was, even though we didn't have the Family Life Center, even though we didn't have the great outreach facility, the power of Jesus was at work, and it meant that people were coming to faith in him. They were coming to trust him, but our neighbors were afraid of us, and they thought we're going to put up a school, or what are we sneaking in here? What are we really doing, and what are we going to do to the town, and all these terrible things that, that, uh... it was a lesson for us about learning to listen to our neighbors, and learning to talk to them, and try to understand them, and sometimes we felt like we got our fingers burned, but we learned to be patient and to understand that maybe they're angry because they're afraid and just to be compassionate with them. So years went by. We, we, we commissioned in 2005 a building committee and they were going to uh, you know, come up with a plan and then we were going to have our new building by the spring of 2007. Uh, well, you know, there were more delays, more delays. During those delays, we came up with a whole new approach to, to our land, and, uh, and we got new advice, and new things came up. Our focus in what we were called to do on this piece of property became much clearer. And uh, finally, it was, you know, 2011 in the fall that we, uh, that we opened this facility. We're so grateful for the delays at the time, we were so disheartened and discouraged. We were so set back. But now we look back on those times and we feel like we've gotten a little bit of insight, maybe, into some of the things that God was doing, into perhaps some of his purposes for why we went through all of those challenges and all those problems. You know, in a small thing like a building project for a church, Maybe we can get some insight into God's great plans and into the secrets of his ways. In the greatest thing that ever went wrong, we can get some insights into God's great plans, into his faithfulness, into how he manages things and turns things around so that all things serve him. Jesus died on the cross. It was the greatest tragedy It was the greatest defeat. It was the greatest turnaround and failure that could ever have been imagined. The Son of God was put up on a stick to be cursed. And I'm convinced that Jesus in heaven looks back at that day and he doesn't regret a single blow. He doesn't regret a single insult. He doesn't regret a single moment of the agony or the pain of death, I think that if, if it were God's will, if it, were, if it would save, if it were of value, he would be ready to do it again because it was good and it brought glory to God and it brought salvation and every bit of the pain and agony just brought more glory to shine And God used the the very nail marks to bring glory to his name. So God uses even those terrible things. So why do I worry about the things that I'm facing? The Apostle John is remembering the feelings of fear and discouragement while they retreated to Ephraim. He remembers that Jesus was present with all of his power. And uh, when we're retreating to Ephraim, when we're running with our tail between our legs, remember that Jesus is present with all of his power. And he still brings people to trust in him. If that's your commitment, if your commitment is to bring glory to the name of Christ to live the gospel, to let the gospel overflow from your life like that Jesus freak, if that's your commitment, then you're on a mission that cannot fail. God will use you. How encouraging is that? Be confident. While you're retreating in Ephraim, get ready. You're not retreating. You're just getting ready. While you're retreating in Ephraim, meditate on who Jesus is. Understand your Savior and your King. Recognize His power. He will be known. Let me just close with these words from the book of Philippians. Jesus will be known. Philippians 2 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, we thank you that all power resides with him. And we thank you that he, in all of his power and all of his majesty and all of his wisdom and grace and love, has set his affection on us. We stand amazed that the Savior would die to bring us together, to be the children of God, to make us one that the glory of Christ might shine in and through us. Oh, fill us with confidence. Fill us with compassion. Fill us with your grace. Strengthen our faith, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.